We're going to be in Acts 2 today, so if you'd be so kind, open your Bibles to Acts 2. Uh, we're going to spend some time going through a rather controversial passage, the first 13 verses. Uh, hopefully we'll get some time uh, to go through Peter's sermon. Uh, next week, for those of you that are going to be here, I will not be doing a resurrection message. You're going to be hearing that at uh, the 8 o'clock service. We're going to continue in Acts, just so you kind of know where we're, where we're going to be. We'll be moving on, so please read ahead. Acts uh, 2. Last week we noted that the book of Acts really records the passing of the baton from Jesus to his disciples. When Jesus was present on earth, he ministered through his human body. He was physically present on the planet. As his ascension, his body went to heaven, and now his ministry takes place through his spiritual body, which is his disciples, his followers. So God's plan requires God's power. We spent some time on that last week. You're not going to accomplish God's plan with human power. That's why in Acts 1.8, God promised the power that we need. Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And based on that power, utilizing that power, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We talked some time last week about the outrageous a job description that the disciples had. It was global, global impact, global witness. And literally through the power of the Holy Spirit, they turned the world upside down, beginning in Jerusalem, as we're going to see in the first few chapters, and then Judea and Samaria, which is the rest of national Israel and the bordering countries, and then Rome, the remotest part of the earth. So today we're going to be spending some time in Acts 2, and it really records the coming of the Holy Spirit into the lives of Jesus' followers. Remember that Jesus is the central figure of the Gospels and the Holy Spirit is the central figure in the book of Acts. So the question would be just exactly who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? Now we're not going to do a study of pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit today, but we'll give you a little bit of an overview. The Holy Spirit is quite simply God himself, the third member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So he's co-equal with God and he is very God. The work of the Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Wayne Grudem wrote a really good book on systematic theology. I'm going to quote him. says, the work of the Spirit is to manifest, that means reveal, the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Now, when you look at biblical history, you see the Holy Spirit working time after time after time. The Holy Spirit is always at work through biblical history. Matter of fact, at the creation, it said the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters when Jesus the Son was com completing the creation. So typically, God the Father plans, God the Son initiates, and God the Spirit is the one who's actively involved in planet Earth completing the work that God the Father and God the Son have initiated. Throughout the Old Testament, you read the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowering people, the Holy Spirit came upon Joshua, you read about that, to conquer uh, Canaan, came upon Gideon to conquer the Midianites, came upon Samson to conquer the Philistines. As a matter of fact, I'm fairly convinced that Samson looked like you and me. I don't think Samson was any big deal when you physically looked at him because it said the Philistines could not figure out how come he was so deadly. How come one guy could take a jawbone of a donkey, that's basically the neck and jawbone of a donkey, a dead donkey, and kill a thousand Philistines. Now, if he was built like, you know, Charles Atlas, you would say, well, I know where his strength comes from. I think he looked like you and me. But it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily 
and he took that jawbone and killed a thousand people. So clearly the Holy Spirit has some significant power. Holy Spirit came upon Saul. Holy Spirit came upon David. Throughout the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit at work. As a matter of fact, the entire Bible is a result of the Holy Spirit inspiring prophets, God's people to write down the scriptures. And that would be people like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. So the word of God came from and through the Holy Spirit, through human agency for them to write it down. He inspired them. Now, a couple of things we need to note. In the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit was very selective. The Holy Spirit only came upon specific people for whom God had chosen for a special task. The Holy Spirit was not universal, very selective. As a matter of fact, 1 Samuel, talking about King David, says 1 Samuel 16. Remember when Samuel was sent by God to anoint David? How old was David? I mean, how old was David when he got anointed king? Twelve. He was 12 years old. He's the youngest of but seven brothers, and he gets anointed at age 12 to be king over Israel. You think you got jealousy in your family? Baby, you've not seen anything yet. This was the, the runt of the litter, and he's, and he's anointed king. And it says in 1 Samuel 16, 13, from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, came upon David mightily, right? Now, in the Old Testament, the vast majority of God's people did not have the Holy Spirit, did not experience the Holy Spirit's presence upon them. So it was very selective. And secondly, in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit was very temporary. In other words, it was not a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It was only temporary. Remember when David, at age 50, wailed enough to know better, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And this was before... Well, I'm not going to go there. But at any rate, he had committed the adultery with Bathsheba and you read his contrition in Psalm 51. He's heartbroken that he's broken God's heart and created so much damage in the kingdom. And one of the things he asks God is, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. And you say, whoa, you mean in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come and go. Yes, this presence of the Holy Spirit was temporary. Remember, David had paid attention to what happened to King Saul. Saul received the Holy Spirit to empower him to rule the nation of Israel. And he had disobeyed over and over and over and over again. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 14, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. So God said, you've disobeyed me one too many times. I'm done. And he took the Holy Spirit away from Saul. David was highly conscious of that. So when he sinned against the Lord through the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, he said, Lord, don't take your spirit away from me. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was selective, only came on some, and temporary. Now, Acts 2, where we're going to study today, records a whole new dispensation, a whole new way that God is going to deal with his people with respect to the Holy Spirit. So here's the principle. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit makes his permanent home in the life of every Christian. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit makes his permanent home in the life of every Christian. From Acts 2 forward, the presence of the Holy Spirit is no longer selective, but is universal. Secondly, the presence of the Holy Spirit is permanent, it's no longer temporary. Acts chapter 2, where we are today, records this one-time transition from the old covenant experience of the Holy Spirit to the new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. 
which, that, which means as Christians, you have the Holy Spirit, which means you have God himself living in you. Now, whether you listen to him or not is a whole different ballgame, right? Whether your spiritual hearing aid works or whether you've taken it out and dunked the battery in water so it won't work, I don't know what you've done, but you have the presence of the Holy Spirit, every one of us does within us at that point. Let's dive into this uh, neat passage, chapter two, verse one. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now the word Pentecost means 50th, 49, 50th, right? Pentecost. The day of Pentecost occurs 50 days after Passover. Passover was always celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. 14th day of the first month was the day of Passover. This was Israel's calendar. It was kind of like their January. It wasn't January, but it was, the four, it was the first month. It always occurred on Shabbat, on Saturday. The day after Passover, the 15th day of the first month was the Feast of First Fruits. And that always took place on the first day of the week on Sunday, right? So 49 days later, you celebrated Pentecost. 50 days after Passover, 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Now, Pentecost was an annual spring festival. There were three major festivals in the Jewish calendar. This was uh, the spring festival, and it was known as the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. And when you see the word weeks here, weeks means seven. So a week of weeks means seven sevens. Seven times seven is what? Is what? 49, just making sure y'all, you know. Past basic math, seven times seven is 49. So if the Feast of Weeks was simply seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits, which is 49 days later, comes Pentecost. So when you see the Feast of Weeks, it's seven sevens, it's 49 days. That's just shorthand code at that point. Now at this harvest festival, every Jewish male was commanded to present themselves at the temple to worship. And this feast usually occurred in late May or early June. So the weather was good and you could travel at that point in time. And what they would do is they'd present the first fruits of their wheat harvest to God because the wheat was just coming up at that point in time and they would bring the first fruits as an offering to God, trusting him that he'd bring the rest of the harvest in at that point in time. And it says here that this was what was going on. The Feast of Pentecost was going on in Jerusalem. And they were all together in one place. They means Jesus' disciples. And if you drop back to chapter 1, verse 15, you find out they is about 120 people. So there's about 120 people in one place right now in chapter 2, verse 1. And they're probably in a building that's located inside the temple complex. The temple complex, of course, on the Temple Mound in Jerusalem is one of the high spots. And it has a very large courtyard and you're going to find out here in chapter 2 that there are thousands of people that show up in this courtyard. So when they say they were in one place, it obviously has to be a place that can accommodate that many people. So it doesn't say what room, but we're fairly certain it's probably somewhere in the temple complex because it would require a big enough space to accommodate that many people. So they're in that room, chapter 1, and chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1. And now let's jump over to verse 2. It says, and suddenly... There came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, the word suddenly means instantaneously, unexpectedly. They're probably praying, boom, there comes a noise from heaven like a violent rushing wind. 
So this is not something that disciples initiate. This is something God initiates. This is something that God brings from heaven. And the first indication of the coming of the Holy Spirit was a noise like wind. Now, Jesus had told them, go to Jerusalem, wait, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He didn't tell them when, and he didn't tell them what to expect. He said, go and wait. Now, my question to you, has God ever told you to go and wait? Yeah. How are you doing at waiting? Not very well. We don't do very well. I mean, we want an instant, right? Give me the remote, change the channel, get off this thing, you know, whatever it happens to be. So God said, Jesus said, go and wait. I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when God says to you, wait, be patient, he doesn't say, I'll be there in 10 days. He says, I'll be there when I decide to come. And you say, well, how long is that? And he says, just wait, right? I'll tell you. When I come, I come, right? What's the Ocean's Eleven number? I'll see you when I see you, right? For those of you that, how many of you seen Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Thirteen? Am I the only one? Oh, some of you, okay, that's good, right? So when God says wait, he means wait. He's gonna come on his schedule and he now is showing up. I don't know that they know exactly what's happening, but they hear a noise like a wind. And of course, Jesus had already told them previously in the gospels that the Holy Spirit moves like the wind. You know, when the wind blows, you can't see the wind. Unless you're in Bakersfield, then you see the air you breathe, right? Every breath going in, every breath going out. You can see it and you can taste it, right? But you can't see the wind, but you can see what the wind does. You can see the effects as it blows over trees and things like that. So the word for spirit here is the same as the word for wind. The word for spirit or wind is pneuma. How many of you ever run a pneumatic air wrench? Right? Putting on tires. You may ever run a pneumatic air wrench, right? Brian, I know you have. That's compressed air, right? Pneuma means wind. Pneuma means blow. Pneuma means breath. Okay, that's where we get pneumatic from, from the Greek pneuma, compressed air. And it says, they heard the sound of a violent rushing wind. Every commentator I've read on this seems to come to the conclusion that it's literally a sound like a tornado. And I've read some comments from people who've been through tornadoes, and what they tell you is it sounds like a thousand freight trains running through your backyard. It's just compelling. Uh, I've never been on the end of a runway, but I've seen videos of have, when you get too near a jet engine, it gets rather loud, right? The decibel counts 150, 160. It's really, it's like jet engines on steroids. So when he says violent rushing wind, it's a very loud sound and it gets their attention. Now, it doesn't say they felt the wind. It says they heard a sound like wind. This is not wind. This is a sound like wind, and it's a sign that the Holy Spirit, whose name means breath, right, has come. One translation for wind says blast. So literally, it's really a blast of God's breath fills the room and engulfs them. And it says, <clears throat> earlier on, Jesus said, I'm gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For those of you that have seen a baptism, we take a person and we actually immerse them in water, correct? We dunk them in water and we hold them down a long time. Actually, we don't, for those of you that come. And yes, we do use warm water, for those of you that are worried about that. Not in a river. I mean, we, it's pretty civilized here. But they were baptized, they were immersed, they were engulfed with God's breath. They were completely surrounded with the Holy Spirit inside and out. 
Interestingly enough, yesterday I made French toast for Marin and I for breakfast. And when you make French toast, you have to dip, right, the bread in the egg mixture. And you really, if you really want good French toast, you have to leave it there for a while. You have to soak it, right? So the bread is soaked inside and out. That's the word picture here. You're immersed, you're engulfed in the Holy Spirit. You're soaked inside and out. So being baptized with the Spirit is literally like being saturated with the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is. It's water baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Go to verse three. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. So sign number one that the Holy Spirit has come is this tornado-like sound. Sign, sign number two is there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Now the fire apparently showed up in the room as one flame. Yeah, the Spirit's working out there too, right? It's not the kids I'm worried about, it's the adults, right? The kids are great. So this fire appeared as one flame and then apparently separated itself into 120 different little tongues of fire that rested on people's heads. Now it's important you understand that this is not actual fire. Nobody got burned, right? This are tongues that appeared like fire. The Holy Spirit is giving a picture of him resting on each person. Tongues of fire resting on each person. Matter of fact, he couldn't have pictured it any more clearly than that, that each person is going to receive the Holy Spirit by the picture of each person has a tongue of fire on their head. God often in the Old Testament displayed himself using fire as a symbol. Remember the burning bush with Moses? And the burning bush would not burn up, it kept burning and burning and burning. Remember the pillar of fire? that showed the way for the Israelites at night in the wilderness. So fire is often a symbol of God's guidance and he's now giving them a picture of fire that says, just like my presence led the nation of Israel in the wilderness, I will rest on you individually and I will give you that same guidance. Okay, just remember that picture. Verse four, we've heard the wind, we've seen the fire, and now it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is a verse of major divergence of opinion. Major divergence of opinion. The traditional Pentecostal and charismatic interpretation of this passage is, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event that takes place after conversion. In other words, you can be a Christian and not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that creates kind of a two-class system. Christians that are baptized with the Holy Spirit, hoo-hoo, and Christians that are not baptized with the Holy Spirit, just ordinary, non-spirit-filled Christians. That's a problem because that can create a lot of arrogance and pride and division in the church body. Romans seems to contradict that Pentecostal position. Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Jesus. So the implication is, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God at the moment of salvation. Romans 6.3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So Paul seems clearly to indicate there that every single believer is baptized with or receives the Holy Spirit at the very moment of salvation. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13, for those of you that want to cross-check this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one baptism. The point is, is at the moment you trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, the Holy Spirit automatically comes in to take up permanent residence in your heart and he makes you part of God's family, which means you don't have to beg the Holy Spirit to show up. You don't have to do a bunch of rituals. You don't have to do a bunch of rites. He comes at the moment of salvation. Jesus Christ promised that he would. As a matter of fact, one of the great things about being a Christian is you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. He won't get lost. He doesn't ever go to sleep. He doesn't need a vacation. He's always living in you permanently. However, just because the Holy Spirit is present doesn't mean you're paying attention. Amen? Say amen. Come on. All right. You can disobey that voice inside that says, don't do this. You can disobey the Holy Spirit. You can ignore him. You can choose to operate in the flesh, in your own power, and not in his power. Trying to live the Christian life without the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit is like trying to steer a parked car. You ever tried to steer a parked car? You can whack on that wheel all day long, but nothing happens, right? Because you don't have any power and you don't have any forward motion. You ever had a car break down and get behind it and had to push it? Right, right? So you got two people, maybe, if you can con somebody else to help you get out of the intersection, you're pushing a two and a half ton car, about 5,000 pounds, right? You have a whole lot of work with not a lot of effort. We were, um, we were in uh, the Taft Oil Dorado Parade in October of last year. And behind the fire truck we were on is the, what do you call the Grand Master, the Grand Marshal. Grand Marshal of the parade, and he's driving. He's in a 63 Lincoln with suicide doors, right? This is a great old Lincoln, fabulous car. And if you go through Taft, there's a slight uphill grade, and you're kind of crawling along for this parade. Well, this puppy overheats. That's the 63, right? And, you know? <laughs> So we get to the top of the, you know, little of the hill, and we're going to turn left on Center Street, and this thing just dies. I mean, just it's smoking and steaming, and I'm thinking, this guy's in trouble. So three of our office staff jump off and push this Lincoln for eight blocks. And I'm looking at these guys, Philippe and Hendra and stuff, and they're going, <laughs> just, I mean, they're, even in October, you know, that's a lot of work, because it's about a two and a half ton car. It's, it, you know, the Lincoln's a real big vehicle at that point in time. So that's a picture of living the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Now, what the Holy Spirit is, is a thousand horsepower engine under the hood, right? The automobile is designed to operate with internal combustion power, not human push power. And Christians are designed to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, not human power. So many, many times we get frustrated with our life and we get frustrated trying to live the life that we're supposed to live because we're trying to do it in our own strength. It's a major, major problem. Ephesians 5.18 reiterates this when it commands us to do what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The implication there is keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. The book of Acts, we're going to find out here in the next few weeks, there's multiple examples where you see this phrase, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you see these miracles, and you go, 
Whoa, what's all a miracle have to do? Well, they have God themselves living inside them just like you, but they're actually paying attention. They're actually obedient, and the Holy Spirit releases supernatural power to accomplish phenomenal things. Our Christian life is kind of like a balloon filled with air. You know the major problem with a balloon filled with air? We leak. And we need constant refilling. Amen? We need constant refilling. If you drive your car, sooner or later you're going to have to what? You're going to have to go gas it up. You're going to have to refill it or you're going to run out of power and you have to push the darn thing, right? The Christian life is kind of like a sailboat. Our sails constantly have to be filled with the wind of the Holy Spirit and we're not going to go anywhere. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers and directs you and right here is where we run into the trouble. Everyone wants the power of the Holy Spirit, but no one wants to give up control. Say amen. amen. Here's the principle. You will experience the Holy Spirit's power and direction to the degree that you surrender control to God. I probably should say to the exact degree, but you will experience the Holy Spirit's power and direction to the degree that you surrender control to God. The book of Acts often says, be filled with the Spirit, they're filled with the Spirit. Now, if you're filled with the Spirit, you know what the implication is? You can't be filled with anything else. I want you to think of a bucket. You get a five-gallon bucket and you fill it with water. If you fill the bucket all the way to the brim with water, is there room for anything else? No, it's filled, right? If your bucket of life is filled with you and only you, there's no room for the Holy Spirit, right? So it's all about you. And whose power are you depending on? Yours. You cannot do the supernatural living that you're called to do under human power. It's like pushing a Lincoln uphill. It's going to be very, very frustrating. By the way, God is not interested in part of you, but he's interested in all of you. If the bucket of your life contains garbage, you can ask God to clean it out, but don't ask the Holy Spirit to tolerate it, right? God is not interested in tolerating filth. If the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, he is not going to tolerate filth in your life. He's going to want to clean it up. And some of us don't want to give him that option. We want his power, but we want to retain control. And he says, no. I don't come in to take sides, I come in to take over. I want you to think of an airplane. Get an airplane in your mind, airplane flying through the air. If you're flying the airplane of your life, the Holy Spirit is not in control, who is? You are. Now here's the reality. God is an infinitely better pilot than you are. Are you surprised, right? Muhammad Ali used to say, Allah is my co-pilot. In other words, Ali is saying, I'm in charge, but just in case, I've got Allah on board in case I need him. I want you to imagine what happens to the airplane if the pilot and the co-pilot have a major disagreement about the destination. Get the picture? Most of us have crash-landed the airplane of our lives at one time or another by trying to grab the controls away from God. 
Here's the reality. God will never be your co-pilot. God will never be a passenger on your plane. God owns the airplane. God owns the airline. God owns the airport. And God owns you and I. Yes? yes? By right of creation and right of redemption. He is the pilot. We are the passengers on his plane. And he is the one who checks and chooses the destination, right? Now, this is a major, major issue because we all want the power of the Holy Spirit, but you don't get it until you submit, until you surrender, until you say, Lord, thy will be done, not I want to do it my way. Because if God gives you your way, it will not be a holy way. We don't choose in our own strength to do the right thing. We only choose to do the right thing when we have the guidance and the correction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense so far? You with me? Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is the, right, the Feast of Pentecost, which means there's literally hundreds of thousands of Jews from all around the country coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So there's a lot of pilgrims in town. They're traveling Jerusalem to observe these feasts. And the Mosaic law had brought them to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a pretty packed place right now because of this particular feast of Pentecost. And verse 6 says, And when the sound occurred, the sound, this tornado sound, the sound of a violent rushing wind, this big crowd comes together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. So the purpose, God's purpose of this large sound was to draw a crowd. He wanted to draw a crowd, and he did. What the crowd heard was the disciples, 120 people, speaking in the various languages of the people groups from foreign countries. Now, this is not ecstatic speech. This is not gibberish. This is not unintelligible speech. This is not a spirit language that's known only to you and God. This is a known Actual series of languages, foreign tongues, comprehensible. They were foreign languages that were spoken by various people throughout the Roman Empire. Interesting that this event right here is a reverse of what happened to the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? They're going to build this tower to God. God says, scatter, and they say, forget it. We're all going to be together. So God did what? He invented all the foreign languages. He changed all their tongues so they couldn't understand each other, so he scattered them around the world like he chose to do in the beginning. They wouldn't listen, so he said, fine. You all speak one language, now you're going to speak 200 languages. And because you're going to speak 200 or 300 or however many languages, you're going to go where you can understand each other because he wanted to separate people and he wanted to scatter them around the world. Now he's reversing that. He's demonstrating the unity of the gospel by enabling the disciples to understand these multiple foreign languages that obviously others could understand. Verse 7. And they, the audience, the crowd, the multitude, were amazed and they were saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them each in our own language to which we were born? Now, all of the disciples at this point in time are from northern Israel. All of them are from Galilee. That's the region of northern Israel. Galileans were considered hayseeds. 
They were considered country bumpkins. They were considered hicks. They dressed like country bumpkins. They had a distinctive accent. The Galileans were not educated and they were not sophisticated and they were not cultured. They spoke a very guttural kind of language and they often swallowed syllables. Did somebody say oators? When speaking, no, this is a definite, this is much lower than oators. They were really looked down on, really. So when you were called a Galilean, that was almost an epithet. I mean, you were not, it was like dumb and dumber, right? That's what Galileans were. They were very provincial and they were looked on as being uneducated. So this multitude comes together and they look at 120 very provincial, uneducated hicks and they're speaking fluently in multiple foreign languages. And the crowd goes, they can't even speak Hebrew right. How is it that they're speaking all these foreign languages? It's astonishing to them and they're confused. I'm gonna ask Rob to put a slide up because verse 9, 10, and 11 tells you where they're from. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. I thought that was a drink from Starbucks. Cappadocia, right? Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound like a drink, you know? Frappuccino, yeah, yeah. A frappuccino from Cappadocia, that works. Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own language speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So God has supernaturally drawn all these people to gather at Jerusalem because he wants them to hear the gospel and he wants them to be saved. And you know what they're going to do when they get saved? They're going to scatter back to all these nations that they came from. And what are they going to take with them? They're going to take the gospel with them, right? God's a very strategic God. He's building his church. Now, I want you to notice the list of people groups goes from east to west. Parthians and Medes live to the east and north of Israel. This is modern day Iran, Parthian and Mede. It's the ancient Persian empire. The Parthian empire, interestingly enough, was the one empire that Rome could not conquer. They were very, very competent horsemen. The Scythians came out of this group. Uh, they were even a little further east than that, but Rome was unable to conquer the Parthians. So Parthians and Medes, Elamites and Mesopotamia. This is ancient Babylon, modern day Iraq. So you have Iran, then you have Iraq. We're a little closer to Israel, but it's still to the east. It literally, the Mesopotamia means literally between two rivers. So the whole Mesopotamia region between Iraq is between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. That's where modern day Iraq is. That's what Mesopotamia was. Now, all of these people are Jews living in foreign countries. And you say, well, how come there's so many Jews living in Iran and Iraq current day and back in Mesopotamia? Well, they were descendants of the Jews who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, right? And they never come back. Remember the book of Esther? The book of Esther is all about the Jews in the Persian Empire who did not go back with Nehemiah and Ezra. So they're still there and there's lots of descendants. They're faithful Jews. They practice the Jewish faith, but they live in foreign countries, right? Judea, it says the region of Judea, this was the Roman province, included Syria, it was really southern Israel. 
Galilee's northern Israel, Judea's southern Israel. If you go directly north of Israel, you're going to run into modern-day Turkey. They call that Asia Minor. Cappadocia was almost directly north. It was a little region there north, northern of, uh, north of Israel in modern-day Turkey. And then we have a group of four, Pontus, Asia, that's Turkey, Phrygia and Pamphylia. They were all provinces in Asia Minor to the northwest of Israel. It's all the Anatolian Peninsula, which is all modern-day Turkey. Uh, Egypt, Libya, and Cyrene. Now we're going to the south and west <clears throat> on the African continent. Uh, Libya is right there, uh, and Egypt on the Mediterranean. Rome is in the Mediterranean. It's 1,400 miles away from Jerusalem, right? 1,400 miles northwest of Jerusalem is Rome. And it says, these people are Jews and proselytes. The word Jews here denotes someone who was born into a Jewish family, and a proselyte is a person who has converted to Judaism. So when you see proselyte. Now to be a proselyte, obviously you needed to undergo circumcision. You needed to uh, obey the tenets of the Jewish faith. Hopefully there would be a sacrifice made on your behalf. But there was a whole process of becoming a proselyte. One of the reasons the Jews here are so stunned is they've never heard God being praised in any other language except Hebrew or Aramaic. And now they're listening to Jesus Christ being praised, God the Father being praised in, in every language known to that region of the world. Cretans lived on the island of Crete, that's 60 miles south of Greece, right in the middle of the Mediterranean. And Arabs, of course, lived to the east of Israel, uh, east of the Red Sea and the Euphrates River. At this time, the Roman Empire had a population of about 50 to 80 million people. Just give you, how many people in the United States today? About 330 million. The whole empire had between 50 and 80 million people, so they had a little more elbow room then. About two and a half million people lived in Judea. That's the region around Jerusalem. There were about five million Jews in the whole empire at this point in time. And during these Jewish feasts, many of the Jewish males especially made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So the population of the city of Jerusalem could grow by two, three hundred thousand people very easily during a feast, right? So there's an enormous Jewish population in Israel. Almost all of them are pilgrims. And Luke has recorded for us a variety of nations that circled Jerusalem, literally within two, three hundred miles. They all made the journey at that point in time. And they are stunned that the Galileans who are uneducated are preaching the gospel in a foreign language that they'd never studied. Now, that's a miracle from God designed to get people's attention. Because all the disciples knew Aramaic. Guess what? Every Jew in every foreign country knew Aramaic well. That was the common language of the land. If the disciples had been speaking the gospel in Aramaic... Everybody would have understood it, correct? But it would have been no big deal because they grew up learning Aramaic. The fact that they were speaking in foreign languages is what got everybody's attention, and that was God's whole point. He wanted them to be paying attention because he had Peter set up to preach a great sermon. Verse 12. And they, this is the three, 400,000 multitude, not all of them were there, at, on sight, but many of them, they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? In the first 13 verses of this chapter, five times, it says that these people were amazed. It says they were bewildered. 
they were perplexed. In the vernacular, they would say they were, they had their mind blown. Like, what in the world is going on? They were not understanding how this could happen and what this miracle was and trying to figure out what it meant, right? So the purpose of God doing this miracle was not entertainment and it was not education. God's purpose was to prepare this crowd to hear the message of the gospel. Now, did everybody buy it? And you say, well, verse 13 tells us not everybody did. Verse 13 says, some of this crowd were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine, right? Now, when you present the gospel, folks, there's always going to be mockers, right? There's always going to be people that don't buy it. There's always going to be people that don't want to hear it. And the naysayers in this crowd are accusing the disciples of being drunk, right? It's a poor explanation. I mean, think about it. Drunk people, really drunk people, can hardly speak their own native tongue very well, right? I used to work in drug and alcohol, and I would work with the folks that got DUIs. You do not want to see videos of people after they've had a DUI. They can't speak their mother tongue very well. And they're accusing the apostles, these 120 people, of being drunk, and that explains the foreign languages. So it's a pretty poor explanation at that point in time because sweet wine was the very least fermented wine. Sweet wine was kind of warm grape juice, right? It was the least potent wine, and uh, people would drink it in the morning so they could continue to function. But remember, at this point in time, almost all water had alcohol in it, right? Water was very impure. They didn't have any Brita water filters back in the day. Right? So the water was not purified, so they'd pour wine in the water and let it set because the alcohol would take care of most of the bacteria. Now they'd dilute it, you know, four, five, six to one, sometimes seven to one. They'd want enough wine in the water to purify it so you wouldn't get Giardia or something. And that's a great weight loss program, by the way. Kind of painful one, but you'll lose a lot of weight in a hurry if you get something like that. So they put wine in the water to kind of purify it at that point in time. So you, you really didn't have a, a lot of intoxication. So it was a pretty poor excuse. And Peter takes them on. And this is one of the most dramatic changes in character you will ever see. Verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea <clears throat> and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For... These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit. Now here's the principle. When you are filled with the spirit, the gospel will spill out of you. Pastor Roger and Pastor Phil have an old saying that they've used for years. When you get squeezed or bumped by life, what comes out of you? Whatever you're full of. Right? We know what you're full of because when you get bumped, whatever comes out reveals what you're full of. Either you're filled with the Spirit and that's what comes out or you're filled with the flesh and filled with self and filled with you, and you come spilling out. What do you think people would rather see? I know you're all special people. They would rather see the Spirit, believe me. Right? What, what they need is the gospel. 
And so Peter is now talking third hour of the day. He defends the disciples. He said, folks, it's only 9 a.m. The Jewish calendar started at 6 a.m. and they calculated from 6 a.m. So it's third hour of the day is 9 a.m. Almost no one ever drank anything before noon. And almost all of drinking that took place in the Jewish culture took place over meals or at ceremonies. Drunkenness has never been a problem within the Jewish culture. It's a very disciplined culture. And they've been drinking wine for years and years and years, but it's almost always been highly diluted and uh, extreme discipline in their culture at that point. Now, I want you to notice Peter's boldness. Peter's willing to take on this crowd and present the truth of the gospel to him. And the rest of this chapter is one of the great sermons in the New Testament. This is the same Peter that wimped out <clears throat> in front of a servant girl and said, I don't know him. I never saw him before. Right? Denied Jesus how many times? Three times. This is the guy who turned and ran away when Jesus was arrested. This is Peter, open mouth, insert foot. That's who he was. I want you to notice his boldness. His cowardice before was legendary and his boldness now is only explained as a result of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. There's no way you can explain Peter's competence at this point in time without the Holy Spirit. Now, I also want you to know that God had given Peter the most dramatic possible introduction for a sermon. You got a noise like a hurricane, which draws a crowd. You've got tongues of fire on people's heads that don't burn them. You got the miraculous speaking of languages. God has staged this event and brought the crowd together in order for what? To save them, right? To hear the gospel and to get saved. The principle here, I didn't even give this one to Rob, is... <clears throat> Folks, don't get distracted by the culture. Don't get distracted by human response. Don't get distracted by human rejection. Stay focused on the gospel. Amen? That's the whole point. So what you see here in the first 11, 12, 13 verses is a one-time event. It's not normative. We don't expect to see tongues of fire on our head. We don't expect ourselves to speak in foreign tongues. It's a one-time event where God changes the way he interacts with people before. One of the reasons, yeah, have you ever looked at the Old Testament and you look at the children of Israel and God said, do this, right? Do this and here's the goodies that you'll get. Don't do this because here's the baddies that you get. And how often did they obey? Almost never. It seems like they would start and they would fail and they would start and they would fail and they would start and they would fail. Now, some of that is the cussedness of human sin, and some of it, Scripture tells us the law, the Ten Commandments were given to us not to change our behavior, but to reveal to us that we need a Savior, right? Here's the point. They didn't have the Holy Spirit individually. You do. So we have the power to be obedient, if we do not obey God, we don't have an excuse that we don't have the power. We've got the power. The God himself, the third member of the Trinity, lives in you. You've got all the power you need to do anything God wants you to do. The problem is God's not going to give you power to do what he doesn't want you to do. Amen? Amen? So the solution is 
Ask him what you should do before you decide to do it. I know this sounds so basic. You go, well, duh, Brad. I, I know. How many of us do things and then ask him? You know, in, in most organizations, and I have subscribed to this for decades, I confess, it's always better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. Right? Now that's the flesh talking. When you get an organization, you say, ask for forgiveness, don't ask for permission. When you're dealing in God's economy, ask for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, what? Let him ask of God and you'll get it. And one of the beautiful things about the Holy Spirit is he never sleeps. Sometimes in the course of a week, I'll, I'll, I'll be struggling what to do. And God will speak to me. And you know how he speaks to me most of the time? Through his word. He'll bring a verse back. The Holy Spirit will bring it. Have you ever had that happen? You wonder what to do and the Holy Spirit brings a verse to your mind and you go, oh, that's it. Or... I was talking to Marjorie Richard the other day. A lot of times I'll be going through the week and I won't know, and a song will come from Sunday morning. Just a song. And it'll have the lyrics that tell me what I need to do. Sometimes I don't know what to do and I'll get a phone call from a friend and they'll drop a line on me. Have you thought about da 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 da? And the Holy Spirit will go, that's for you, Brad Hannock. You ever had that happen? So the Holy Spirit is actively at work in our life, always prompting us. The question is not whether he's prompting us. The question is, is our hearing aid on? Right? Okay. All right. Tom, if you could start the prayer request, I'm going to go through the major points again. Read ahead. Lord willing, we'll be finish up chapter 2 and start chapter 3 next week. Here's our main principles. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit makes his permanent home in the life of every Christian. Each one of you have God the Holy Spirit living in your heart right now. Number two, you will experience the Holy Spirit's power and direction to the degree that you surrender control to God. That is essential. Thy will be done will get you power and get you direction from God because you are now an available vessel for Him to do supernatural work to. And then number three, when you are filled with the Spirit... We'll know it because the gospel will spill out of you. Okay, I love you guys. Now that you know, do what you know.